The ACN podcast is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners and sponsors, including the Agile Alliance. As a nonprofit membership organization, the Agile Alliance is an excellent resource to help you along your Agile journey. To learn more about the Agile Alliance and our other sponsors, as well as how you can become a sponsor or supporter of our show, please visit acnpodcast.org for more information. And thank you for your support. everyone. This is the Agile Coaching Network. My name is Ray Arell. This particular podcast as well as live event is brought to you by the Agile Alliance. Agile Alliance, if you don't know who they are, go up to agilealliance.org. They're a great nonprofit organization that helps to sponsor things like this particular podcast and this particular live event in order to share learning and expand the body of knowledge that's around in Agile. Joining me today, I have a few uh, regulars that normally come up on the call and help us to get the conversations going. And we'll just go kind of go round robin and uh, let them do some introductions. Uh, Shauna, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Shauna Cullinan, and I am an enterprise agile coach uh, at Pack Yolen, and I'm just happy to be here today. Happy Friday, everybody. My name is Jörg Pietroska. I'm uh, currently people manager in embedded software, which is my technical background from electrical engineering. I've been with Agile Methods for a long time in different roles. And what I enjoy most is seeing people grow around me and learn things. Yeah, I'm Henrik Esser. I work at Ericsson, a super large telecommunication company. And there I'm, uh, you could say, transformation leader, uh, facilitator, coach. And I'm also working, and that's a great pleasure for the Agile Alliance uh, running the Supporting Agile Adoption Initiative. Yes, and you guys have been publishing a, a few good blogs lately. Um, keep that up. Yes, and a super cool special edition of the Agile Coaching Network. That's true, actually. You guys can actually tune into that, and it's a couple episodes back, but if you look at the different uh, syndications that we're on today, you can either go directly to the Agile Alliance site, or you can go up to the Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google you know, we're, we're everywhere. If you're like me and I, I just sort of get a little bit lazy about uh, listening to certain podcasts, if you just go ahead and just click the subscribe button, that actually helps out because then it just it automatically shows up in your inbox or, or, or your app. It's probably a better, a better thing to say from that. So to kick us off today, there was a great Twitter post that was put up by Elizabeth Hendrickson a few weeks back. And it really started to for me, trying to figure out how do we learn as individuals and how do we learn as teams? And what I saw that was interesting about her post was that she talked about her approach and the way that she approaches learning itself, she says she does it in a, a quite a nonlinear fashion. She runs a, a headlong into trying to do things. She gets stuck because she pushes up against the what she doesn't know. And then she does a random walk around the internet uh, looking for the, the foundational knowledge that helps her to go move past the, the current point where she's stuck at. And then rinse and repeat, go back to number one, start to go headlong back into the problem and continue to, to move forward. And that's a similar learning style that I have as well. And I know that some of you are on the phone and you can't actually see the picture that I put po posting here, but recently I decided to expand the number of pieces of maker equipment that I have. And I bought myself a little CNC mill and I had 
to be honest with you, I've been doing 3D printing for like, you know, since 3D printing has started, but I've never actually used the opposite of this, which is instead of adding material, kind of removing material from something. And I decided to buy the CNC mill to try to go off and just make objects. I am not a machinist. I'm an electrical engineer. I, I don't know that much about mechanical. It's only what I've been self-taught, but very similar to Elizabeth's approach in this. You know, and there's a picture here that I have of all of these different iterations. It took, you know, five to seven iterations before I could build something effectively with this particular toolkit. And I noticed within companies, things like patterns of, of how teams learn together. I've started to see a lot more people using things like mob programming, uh, being able to, you know, get together as a group and learn together, not as an individual, but also try to this pattern of being able to bring people together to navigate through something that we're trying to all learn together or we're trying to transfer knowledge to one another. And sometimes I know transferring knowledge is sometimes exhausting for people. And I was just curious as we went, how do you within your company as an agile coach or as an individual manager or, or others, or even just as a teammate, how do you build learning for yourself and your teams? And where do you go to learn? Um, do you go to conferences? Uh, do you spend, you know, a week at like the, you know, the big Agile conference? And then if you go off to other places where there's, you know, some expense or cost associated to it, are you required or do you have to prove the ROI uh, of what you're doing? So with that, to kick this off, Shana, how do you approach learning uh, within your organization and yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, learning for me is is kind of twofold. I think there's the things that you can do to encourage learning within the organization. But one of the things, um, you know, we talk a lot about mindset uh, in Agile. And one of the things that I find is when I come into organizations, people don't really um, listen in the right way. So it's hard to take in information to learn. So the four ways that people listen, you listen to agree, you listen to disagree, you listen to respond or you listen to understand. And if you can if you can ask questions, if you can listen to understand, tell me more, tell me why that's important, you really enter a, a place of learning. And that's something that um, I I help organizations first because that also creates a level of trust. It's hard to learn when you can't trust. And then once you can kind of start changing the language and getting people to be more open, then you can start adding things like um, brown bags or, you know, things like um, uh, fail and learn sessions where, where people can get up and they can talk about those things because people are listening differently. So to me, that is one of the most important things. Um, you know, uh, conferences, all of those places, you can either go in and be like, oh, yeah, I would never do something like that. Or you can go in with the, an open mind and figure out what can I take from this. And to me, that's the most important thing. Cool. Um, how about Hendrik? How about, how about yourself? Well, um, I think Elizabeth's um, approach is very similar to mine. And I loved seeing your pictures because this is exactly how I go about making <laughs> Um, so um, I'm also a person that um, 
I learned by getting interested, I'm running into a problem and I try to figure it out. But arrogant as I am, I always try to first figure it out myself. And I recognize that this is a phase where I actually understand the problem better. And when I understand it good enough and I get stuck enough, then I start looking for uh, resources where I can learn. And then I use anything possible. First of all, the free stuff, uh, the internet, colleagues, and, and whatever I can find. And that keeps me going usually. Then I have relatively fast an idea uh, how to proceed. And then I run into the next problem, and this is like an infinite loop. And finally, I know so much that I know the, that I know nothing. <laughs> Expert level, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we rise to the level of our own incompetence at, at times. And the pictures that I showed, I didn't actually show you, um, you know, the other box of scrap. And also, equally as such, I didn't show you all the cuts on my fingers as well. Um, how about you, Jörg? Uh, yeah. I would like to make a split there, looking at first skills, so things I really do myself. Uh, there I'm as well the enthusiastic beginner, diving into it and then failing and um, wiggling my way through more experience. And then there's the knowledge part of learning, so acquiring facts or information to, to use. And that actually I have the habit of just collecting. I'm always curious when I come across facts, so that makes it pretty simple for me to get into new environments by just standing as a side part in the discussion and pick something up and then ask additional questions because I'm just naturally curious. And that's as well what I try to do with my teams. I try to ask questions and get them into discussions about what they don't know or what they've experienced that others have never seen to broaden the imagination and then generate knowledge from that. That's the fun thing about communication, that it always uncovers something new. And maybe just shortly touching on proving return on invest for learning. Actually, the, the challenge that has been put before me very often for conferences and the like, share what you learned or share where you spend your time. But very few people ask me really for return on invest in terms of how to apply the knowledge yeah, what I've seen is is that sometimes the people don't ask. Yeah, the automatic assumption is is that oh, I'm not going to get approved to go to a particular event, so therefore I'm never going to ask. And what I found is is that um, you just just ask. I think I've in my 30 year career in a big company, I actually never got told no, which was pretty cool. I actually once got told no in in one company, and my response was, "I'm going anyway, but you might not participate in what I learn." Well, you know, and that's the other option. I see other people just spend their own money to go to these events as well. How about Alex? What do you have? Hi, I, I like your presentation here, the how do you prove the ROI? And I think that's the, the key of, of using the, the knowledge, have some kind of measure in the team if they are really like applying all this knowledge because it's simple concepts, but then the mindset, it's hard that they get into and then apply it in the regular basis so so i'm working on how, how to 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 measure and just to see if it's a low or or high density of of using this uh, in the daily basis of of the team when they already have this this knowledge i think that's a key right now just to ask you on that particular uh, line Certain things that I would put in my toolkit, and I just recently cleaned my garage, which was a mess. 
but I have a lot of tools and there's there's certain tools that are very specialty that I might bring the, that thing out maybe once every, you know, you know, six months or a year. How do you how do you temper that ROI question to say that well maybe somebody will use it one day, but not every day? Does that sometimes become a challenge for you? Yes. Your example is is it good that maybe that tool you need it once a month, but you need like to measure and in a simple way that you are using the tools no? If not, then you end up doing the things as you use without the, the knowledge, you know, the, you didn't get the ability to. Sure, sure. To well, thank it. you. Thank you for that. Sheila, are you there? I guess maybe I'm a little bit lucky with the development teams that I uh, that I have who are very good at self-learning. They're all always curious and learning new things. And for me, what I do is then facilitate uh, lunch and learn uh, when appropriate for for different people on the team to do knowledge sharing during a lunchtime kind of discussion on something that they want to share out with the with the teams. And that has been very useful because I have found that a lot of people like to learn from the people they work with. So it's worked really well for me. It's not, you know, there is paid for learning and seminars and things that people ask to go to. And certainly those are those are out there. But even webinars like this one, there are plenty of those. And I have a, a lot of people on my team will attend those to get additional knowledge into things that they would like to know. Awesome. Thank you for those. Richard, are you there? So for me personally, like I'm usually in a lot of environments where I'm the sole agile practitioner and I have to like coach and teams and organizations and sort of feel like the unicorn. So it's always been a starvation in terms of like, how do I build up, obviously build up their skills and understanding of agile, but also my own and understanding some of the winning formulas that other practitioners use to solve problems for their teams. I mean, I definitely enjoy going to certification classes and, but really it's, that's more than to, for learning what I learn in there, it's really more about hearing others and how they're solving their problems. But the way I've been generally a Approaching this issue is, especially recently, you know, researching things constantly online. And so, for example, things like lead time, understanding what lead time is. And then I realized, you know, that would be a potentially useful metric to track for the organization. And then from there, realizing that, oh, I need to learn statistics in order to really explain you know, what the upper control limit and lower control limits are for explaining lead time to the organization. And then I try to share that with others. That's been sort of my approach so far. Turning investment, that hasn't really been such an issue to date. So I have nothing to add there. Oh, those are those are all good suggestions. So when you when you say that you bring in different ideas, are you trying to see what sticks and what doesn't stick? Yeah, because uh, it's really an experimentation. You know, I, I certainly encourage my teams to do small experiments, um, they still don't get the necessarily the fail fast or it's that it's okay to fail. 
Um, as long as we learn something valuable from that, that's still kind of a foreign concept, especially for executives. So I, not, I have to plan to educate them and get them to understand the value of being a fully agile shop. The, the failing, the failing fast and and failing quick and. I don't think that most uh, most executives like to fail publicly and and are out in the open, and so that always becomes a challenge. Thank you for that, Richard. Um, Abby, are you there? I am. How are you all? Doing great. Good. So one thing that I think in the past has helped me with the different teams that I've worked within as to really build learning is the ability to have a playground. Um, especially in the technology world, we can try and train on software just by visuals and PowerPoints. But to some extent, even when you're developing and trying to learn new code bases or new systems that you're implementing, it helps to be able to really see the effects of your code and the effects of your systems in order to really learn. And that's one thing that I, th I keep coming back when I talk to others about experience over, I guess, textbooks or um, reading materials when it comes to learning, just because then we have some, something in our own minds to reference back on how we improved our own learning and that. And so that kind of, it builds the ROI behind the fact that you are building your own inferences, but also giving back to improving the overall systems. Makes it, sense. it makes a lot of sense. I think that more people that if they actually take the time to dig into sort of the mysterious code blocks that exist within their code base and just take it off to a personal workbench and just practice with it. It's a good way of actually learning into new areas and new spaces, which I find is absolutely a, a must. Yeah, sir. How do you learn? Yeah, so uh, basically the what I do is maybe slightly selfish with it. I try to crowdsource my learning, you know. So the first thing I look for is a community of uh, the, the, the area which I'm trying to, to learn. Because, you know, I, I, my idea is like, why reinvent the wheel? I mean, there are people who have spent a lot of hours learning stuff. So, you know, it's, it's directly better to directly read from them, learn from them rather than, you know, putting in on all those hours again. So it's like more of crowdsourcing. When you say crowdsourcing, how do you engage that? How do you create a crowdsourcing environment around things that you want to learn? Well, I mean, uh, basically, it's it's like, first of all, find a really active community, mostly online. And then, you know, usually these communities have either a, like a, a you know, Q&A section where people can, uh, like a forum, or they have, you know, online sessions every month or something. So, you know, this is how I usually engage. Because, of, of course, I mean, the area which I'm trying to explore, I get the basics of it first. I mean, so that, you know, the terminology that they're talking about, it makes a little bit of sense to me. But then, you know, the, the usually... If I'm going to an area, I would like to get more advanced knowledge. So it's basically the things that are uh, sort of finding it difficult. Uh, I just post it over there. And then, you know, I, I think so. here the idea is to get a really engaging community. I mean, otherwise it could be a sort of a lonely place. Right. Fully agree with that. Um, and I find that sometimes online communities, you, know, you just need those people to just step in and just sometimes you end up having to be the host. Uh, and other times yeah. that there's a lot of, of good information that's out there that you can go and, and pull from. Joseph, are you there? What do you have to offer? One of the things that I find is probably the best way, at least that I learn, is just from good mentoring. So the idea, you know, you have people in your organization that hopefully that have been there much longer than you have, that have, you know, technical experience, communication experience that you might not have. 
and just being able to find time with those people to really you know communicate if you're in a more technical role the some of the architectural things that you need to know the uh, how to solve certain types of problems and then if you're you know in a more managerial role how to effectively communicate and uh, when I started off my career I spent about two years you know writing code without code reviews without really any real mentoring I was writing code that worked so no one really asked questions but then when I finally did get mentors to take a look at things you know you start going oh wow I've been I've been doing things I could have done this so much easier could have saved my company so much more time if I had just known what these people know and I think something that you that you see sometimes is uh, organizations will take some of their really senior people the people that are highly capable and throw them at the hard problems and have them you know full time working on these really hard problems but I think you need to take those people have them step back at least a little bit and start educating the newer people on the teams in uh, you know sharing some of that experience and knowledge as a manager one of the things that i made is a responsibility for the senior developers is that in order to move up higher in the ranks that they had to have at least three to five um, mentees that they were sharing their knowledge with and if they weren't doing that helping to go expand the body of knowledge throughout the company it didn't matter that they were the best programmer in the bunch they they needed to to share they needed to get that stuff out there. Thank you for that input. Uh, Jeremy, are you there? Hey, I think one of the one of the things that helps me learn is is really through scenario-based learning. Uh, okay. So we started putting on some scenario labs where you know the the whole Scrum Master community can come together and and talk about either team scenarios or scenarios based on you know recent knowledge that they've obtained. Uh, and talk through how to apply that. And to me, I think that's been very beneficial to elevate the entire group on on a certain topic and walk away with uh, kind of a not only the same understanding, uh, but all the various approaches that you know they can come up with to solve or talk through or to apply certain scenarios and learnings. And do you create like a sort of a marketplace for that when you when you say these scenarios that you create? Do you or do you um or you do how do how do you how do you facilitate those scenarios? I'm just curious. A lot of them are organic from the teams, right? So if a team experienced like an impediment or you know a, a challenge that they want to learn to see if it was the best approach or if there's other approaches that other teams have made. You know, so it's usually a brown bag session, right, during the lunch hour and um, just send it out. You know, we have an open invite for topics, but, you know, we come in prepared with with some that, um, you know, we hear from forums like this. Thank you for that. My personal learning style is is iterative. So I learn by doing and a little bit of what Elizabeth, you know, the, the tweet that you showed, I do a little bit of that. Uh, but essentially, it's I, I figure um as soon as I figure the first step out, I go do it and then figure out what's the next hurdle and then I come back. So I go back between going to the source and then trying to come back to my playground to figure it out. So I alternate between that. Um, in terms of working with teams and building learning, everyone learns differently. Uh, like for example, my primary style is uh, I'm an auditory learner, so I learn by listening. Uh, so I love to listen to a lot of TED Talks. I, I don't watch the video, I just listen to it. Um, because then I'm just focused on one of my sensory functions. And with teams, what I've noticed is that as soon as I'm able to connect the 
team amongst themselves and explain or, or have them realize the why of that learning. Um, I think that they, they form a community and then they get to a point where they want each of them to be as successful as they are, if not more. And that sort of helps build a safe place, a space for them to learn and, and experiment. So connecting learners among one another before I connect them to the topic, um, I know that's that's also a, a, a TBR technique. Uh, I've used that and it's been very uh, successful. The forums that I go to learn, TED Talks, LinkedIn, webinars like this, a lot of uh, uh, stuff comes through on LinkedIn that offers webinars such as uh, such as the Gartner webinar that I attended the other day. So there's a lot of free stuff out there and I usually try to exhaust all of that. One of the other things I've learned in a team situation is to do informational interviews across the board, get like a 15 minute coffee break with someone and then someone that I would never work with otherwise, I don't know what, what their everyday work day looks like and ask a whole bunch of questions around that. So to help helps me put the pieces together. In terms of ROI, if I'm able to apply that learning, me or my team, if we are able to apply the learning and do something, uh, improve something, to me, that's ROI enough. Those are all really good points. Thank you for that. Uh, Sheila? I think there are a lot of different things that we're talking about. And to me, it depends on what the purpose of the learning is. If it's just that you're trying to add to your bag of tricks, then there's one way you approach it. If you have a specific problem you need to solve, there's another way that I would approach it. Now, I know that people learn, some people learn by seeing, some people learn by hearing, some people learn by doing, some by a combination of, of all of those things. That's in a classroom setting. But when you're talking about solving a problem on a project, that's a whole different um, thing that you're, you're looking at. Because I've had times where I was trying to use technologies in ways that nobody else had ever used them before. I'd go back to the vendors that developed the, the software and say, this is what we're trying to do. This is what we're trying to integrate. And they'd say, oh, that's interesting. If you get it to work, can you let us know? So in that case, I would be going out to the internet. I would be you know, getting the team together to brainstorm. In one case, I had a situation where I had a number of different, very technical teams that needed to work together. Now, I was, I was able to talk the talk, but I didn't really know in depth what the specifics were that they needed to know. So I did set up mob programming sessions on a daily basis for a couple of months to work through with the whole team. And I had a bunch of scenarios that we had to work through to get the application to work so that we could implement in production on time. Now, that was that one specific situation. But I think it's, it's and that for in that case, that was how you prove the ROI is, yes, it did work. We were able to physically implement it, and it was a showstopper if we couldn't get this done. And no, we didn't know how it actually was going to work until we did this series of mob programming. But and in other cases, different techniques work. I mean, I've set up brown bag sessions to share knowledge, and I've been able to motivate the team because of telling them that, that they all needed to get a basic understanding of what others were doing, whether or not that was something they wanted to do, just so that they'd understand how they, their skill sets integrated with each other. So I'm curious on the mob programming pattern itself. I've seen certain companies embrace it, you know, quite extensively, and then others who will sit there and say that similar to the way that they would frame pair programming and say, well, all those people to solve one problem, why, why would I put them all together? 
How, how do you, have you ever hit that? I didn't ask permission. <laughs> That's awesome. If I had, I might have gotten denied. Um, I just told the, the different groups involved who were actually from different vendors that we had a problem we needed to solve and we needed to find a way to do it by a certain date. And I was going to start with the meeting and we were going to brainstorm and figure out what approaches we could do. And basically it just evolved into me scheduling us and they were in other countries too. So it had to be online in a, a web-based conversation. And basically I would start the session, I would talk about this is the part of the problem we want to solve today. And then I would say, who wants to drive? And when they got stuck, I would say, I would ask something else based on whatever the situation was we were tackling. Okay, let me understand, is this where we are? And this is what I understand are the possible options. Am I understanding it correctly? And either somebody would jump in and say yes and take over, or they'd say, well, no, you misunderstood it. But now that I think about it, and that would get them started again. Oh, that's so awesome. A definite deadline. But I, I like how you um, sort of accidentally put people together and, and put the <laughs> put them in a way that they actually engages them into that. That's that's really good. Thank you for your input. Uh, Randall, you are there. Now, Randall, I have a question for you because I'm noticing yes. on Slido here, um, yes. one of the top questions is yours. Um, yes, it is. Two options. We can continue talking down the, the line of what we're doing here with, with learning, or I can read your question. What would you like me to do? Um, I, I'd be okay to uh, we, to pivot if everyone else is uh, ready to pivot. I, I I really can't add too much more onto what uh, others have said, and I think maybe it, it's about time we, we go to some of the questions, I guess. Okay. Well, I, you know, I, I would do a vote, but you know, Randall, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the last word on that. So I'm gonna go ahead and and read your question here. Randall's question is actually, what guidance would you give to somebody who's transitioning from a Scrum master to an Agile coach? Jorg, do you want to take a yeah. stab at this? Yeah. One one guidance is don't forget what you've learned. Uh, you're gonna need it um, because. Obviously, there's a lot of experience, and the other one is broad, broaden your view and step into the other's shoes that you've interacted with and take their position even more than you've done before. I, I think these are the two things, because in communication, you're probably already pretty good. In figuring out what the problem is, you're probably already pretty good, so you have two good starting points. Now to try to make sure you don't you even enable more people than you just did with the Scrum teams. Those those are good points. Um, one one other thing to add to this, and and this I think is sometimes the confusion of of Scrum Master versus Agile Coach in the first place. Scrum Master, for whatever reason, I've seen really good coaching scrum masters people who already have the coaching tone to help bring out not do things for others but let other you know help enable others to do their work effectively be able to coach them on the patterns of how to practice scrum and then be able to step away from it and allow the team to just be able to do it and then I've seen other Scrum Masters really embrace that word master and and really become control freaks within the environment and not and not enable the team. They just they they make the team dependent on uh, on them to the point where the teams fall into that learned helplessness scenario. 
which is unfortunate. Uh, Hendrik, do you have something to add to this? Maybe um, one thing that pops into my mind is that um, when you go from a scrum master to an agile coach, you transcend beyond scrum. I mean, scrum is one agile practice, but when you become an agile coach, you're representing the agile mindset, values, and principles and embrace rather any kind of practice that would be a manifestation of these of the mindset values and principles and you work more towards people so uh, i think that's the big step that's happening when you're uh, transitioning from a scrum master to an agile coach sure um i i agree with that now how would you reinforce those values how, how would you um people um would would you put those on a wall and and that's good enough or what else <laughs> would you do no i would tattoo it on their forehead <laughs> hey, i have plenty of room on my forehead for it for uh, you have a loose forehead i know <laughs> so but um yeah i mean it's a bit like uh, what we once discussed um in the business agility lab from tomorrow on what's your favorite color is blue i mean you need to live the values and you need to bring them alive via potentially practices, via visualizations and so on. So as an agile coach, you have a bit bigger portfolio than just Scrum uh, to transport the values towards the team. Right. How about Mark? What do you have? Uh, I'm a Scrum Master right now, and I talk to my organization about a professional development path toward an Agile coach. And um, what's I like what I just heard about the Agile mindsets and the principles, and I'm realizing that bringing those into the Scrum Master role is a great starting place to think of myself as a coach. And we've, not to change topics, but we've tried to build communities of practice. And I think coaching as a community of practice was something that appealed more to our organization as we're getting started to move up from the team level more to an organizational level exploration of Agile. And bringing Scrum Masters into the coaching community of practice um, so that we can bring the coaching mindset, bring those Agile principles that transcend that have been around you know, since the manifesto, learn better ways of doing by doing and helping others do, we can apply that to anything, really. So that's been valuable to us is just to kind of, and, and for me, to take a coaching stance and find out how to apply that as I'm being a Scrum Master. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to help us go a long way with that transition. Practice as a Scrum Master first to be coaching and then transition fully and more into an Agile coach role. That's, yeah. I, I, like, I like that. Let's see, Dave, are you there? What do you have? Yes, my name is Dave Todaro. I've been leading software teams for about 30 years and uh, building and coaching Agile teams for the last 13 years or so. Uh, first few years, we're definitely not doing it too well. The biggest thing that I learned transitioning from doing it to coaching it was probably two things. One is holding back a little bit, letting teams fail a little bit without them going off a cliff so they can kind of experience the process as opposed to you just saving them uh, from any sort of pain at any moment. And then the other big one, which really goes against my natural uh, tendency is to ask rather than tell. Instead of telling them, you should do it like this, you should do it like that. Say, okay, so I saw you, you ran into some trouble here or there. What do you think you could have done differently? Is there any ideas? And of course, you know, doing with, with uh, this with the whole team as opposed to just the scrum master. Um, is really valuable. And that's tying into the point made earlier, which is it's all about empowering the team to be self-sufficient, you know, teaching them to fish as opposed to giving them a fish. Sure. Very, very good. John, what do you have? Yeah, so I, I pretty much agree with what's already been said. Definitely, you know, that's something that I went through 
as a transitioning into a coach. If I could give myself some advice back then, is definitely learn more than Scrum. But also, I think someone had just mentioned a coaching a coaching stance. Definitely find out how how to apply what you've learned to specific people. So as a as a coach, me personally, what I do is talk a lot to leadership. They don't really care about the same things like a development team would care about. So things about like project health, budgeting, forecasting quality and deliver value, that type of thing. And as you get into that coaching role, you really need to know more about more than just talking to teams and product owners and stakeholders, but also executives and leadership, find out things that they care about and how you can relate in their language rather than uh, like an agile terminology or, or scrum or, or whatever. That's kind of what one of the things that I struggled with at the beginning, because you know, you do a lot of a lot of talking to people when you're in your own realm and you know, we talk apples to apples, but when you get to a new environment, you really have to learn how to speak to different people in different areas. Agreed. And I think that, you know, the the biggest mistake is is using some of the internal language and then suddenly someone wants to go create a metric on velocity because you've been <laughs> using it too much. But definitely, thank you for that. Jonathan, what do you have? Hi. Um, yeah, definitely along the same lines as uh, what some of these everybody else was saying. Um, getting to that agile coach, you're not really doing as much as you are asking the right questions, provoking that thought and causing people to kind of come up with their own assessment, their own solutions, but based off of uh, the principles, based off the values. And likewise, you're, you're not just sticking with Scrum, you're, you're, you're having conversation across multiple frameworks, multiple techniques that's not just Scrum related. Exactly. And thank you for that. Tammy, are you there? I agree with everything that was um, already stated on this topic. What I wanted to add is doing an iterative approach on learning. So start where they are, incrementally increase their knowledge rather than trying to take all of your experience and knowledge and feeding them by a fire hose. That's a good point. I think sometimes that, especially when I see people go into like two-day workshops, oh man, that's like hitting someone over the head with a book, you know, and, and expecting them to, to know it. So how do you how do you facilitate the incremental um, portions of Yeah, it, uh, of course the approach is different if I'm in a group environment versus a one-on-one -on -one environment. In a group I try to do some exercise to see how comfortable people are with the topic and then that helps me to gauge where I'm at. Just with agile in general adapting and changing to the needs of the environment is super important. So even though I may be coaching in a group and have a plan, that plan may change based upon the experience level of the group that I'm interacting with. If a group has varying levels, I try to do things that pair up the experienced with the novice. Mm -hmm. And then also some exercises where the experienced are separate from the novice to show that even those that may not have the history still have value to add to the, uh, the concepts that we're talking about. Those are great ideas. Thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, let's see. Sheila? I just, one of the things I... Uh, I, I mean, I agree with what everybody is is saying on it. And one of the things that you had mentioned was about, you know, scrum masters and some being being able to do that agile coaching style versus the, you know, cracking the whip kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I think that this actually ties into the previous topic of training and learning 
and that as a scrum master, you know, some of the best scrum masters are also going to be really good at those coaching methods. And that ties into making sure that scrum masters have that type of training based on whatever type of, of training that you would have. And then that makes the any transition that you would go through so much easier. I agree with that. We've got about five more minutes coming up into the hour, and I think we'll probably just stay on this topic because the other one, creating a center of excellence, that one is going to be a much, much longer conversation. Uh, Andy had posted on here that he says uh, he had a question uh, specifically about uh, any advice for people going from an agile coach to an enterprise level coach, which is a kind of an interesting transition from that. Let's see, Hendrik, are you uh, an enterprise level coach? Would you consider yourself to be one? I don't know what an enterprise level coach is. <laughs> well, I'm an agile activist across the enterprise, you could say, um, okay. and especially at very large organizations. Um, it's hardly so that you are connected to each and every function. So um, in my career, um, also work, thanks to my work external to the company, people get to know me more and more. And now, for example, our financial people are reaching out to me to hear about beyond budgeting. I'm in more and more in connection with different parts of our uh, people organization and different uh, parts of our R&D organization is reaching out to me. So. This is spreading across the company and I'm getting more and more um, requests uh, to support people in their agile endeavors. So Very we have a lot of, of parallel movements in this super large company. So in that, in that particular case, working at uh, more of a um, sort of a company-wide level, which I would consider to be sort of in the enterprise level, what enabled you to, 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 to be in that role? Is it something you just stepped into because of your own interest or was it somebody tapped you on the shoulder and said that you look like the smartest guy in the room for that or what? <laughs> I think it's um, it's a lot of it is based on my passion in the end. Um, I'm passionate about this stuff and I've always been supporting not only my own organization that I'm just working in, but also neighboring organizations. And then people get to know you. And uh, when people see you are adding value, you are coming with reasonable and uh, good suggestions, uh, more and more the word is spreading. And uh, over time, and this is now a journey over almost 10 years, um, you're almost known company-wide as, as the expert. Okay. And Shauna, I see your microphone finally lit up. Yeah, I think that the biggest things that are important is to really create a, a set of values and principles that are important and to get alignment throughout the organization. So if from an enterprise standpoint, and I think this is any size company, but once you have alignment on values and principles, then moving to be an agile coach um, within an organization, you at least have something that you can really fall back on and get the group to sort of align to. I think, you know, um, the, the key things for moving from um, being a scrum master to an agile coach for me is, you know, as a scrum master, as other folks have said, you're really sort of in the weeds, you're doing it, you're part of the team. As an agile coach, you kind of take a step back. I do four key things. I interview. I understand what they're trying to solve. I see those things and figure out the opportunities. And the fourth thing is to support and um, teach to be able to either re help them reflect on what's going on, 
to be an advisor, to be a partner, to be an expert. But really, um, doing all of those things, regardless of the size of the organization, is important. I think if you don't have a common set of values or principles that are, um, you know, agreed upon across an organization, you're really not going to be able to um, move at the speed that you want to go or at um, in, in a way that's sort of, uh, you know, where everybody's not just doing their own thing. Totally agree. It looks like we're at the top of the hour. For those of you who want to come see me in person, I will be at Agile Today over in India. That'll be February 29th through March 1st. I'll be there throughout the entire weekend. I've got a couple of sessions that I'm running there. After that, I'll be over at Deliver Agile in April 29th. And that's the technical conference that the Agile Alliance runs. Hopefully we'll get a lot more technical things going there. Um, I know we're going to have some mob programming stations set up and a few of the manifesto authors that'll be there as well. This combination of, uh, of technical and a little bit of uh, light. How do we do our work better as a, as a technical person within an Agile team? Uh, hopefully I'll see you there. Uh, lastly, if you guys uh, saw that, you know, the multiple events that are coming up, the biggest one that's going to be this year, of course, is the Agile 2020. We will be running another business agility lab there. Um, hopefully you guys get the opportunity to come join us over there in Orlando, Florida. Should be a really cool event. With that, I wish you guys uh, a happy month and take care. This podcast is provided by Agile Alliance for educational and informative purposes only. To find out more information about the member-supported Agile Alliance, please go to agilealliance.org to find out about more upcoming events as well as different programs that are available to help you with your Agile journey.